I caught a catfish weighed 82 pounds. Mm. I've caught a 75 with Salonker. We've been with boys, caught a 94, and seen boys catch an 84, and then our group personally, the biggest one we've ever boated was 75. I caught one, I didn't even put him in the boat. I didn't want him in the boat with me. Made him break off. Ooh, that hit away well 100 times. Got this, got this, what up, please? I got, got this, what do you mean? I got, got this, by his mouth. Just kept away with his The catfish swims deeply through American culture. It surfaces every so often in fish stories and in folklore and literature sometimes as a low-down scoundrel, other times, as in Mark Twain's Life on the Mississippi, as a menacing monster. A big catfish collided with Marquette's canoe and startled him. And reasonably enough, for he'd been warned by the Indians that he was on a foolhardy journey, and even a fatal one, for the river contained a demon whose roar could be heard at a great distance and who would engulf them in the abyss where he dwelt. I have seen a Mississippi catfish that was more than six feet long and weighed 250 pounds. And if Marquette's fish was a fella to that one, he had a fair right to think the river's roaring demon was come. <laughs> Near the cash register at the Peelahatchee Bay Trading Post, a bait and tackle shop just outside Jackson, Mississippi, are snapshots of what might be some distant relatives of the demon catfish Marquette is said to have spotted back in the 17th century. That's a 75 pound one right there. And that's a 72 pound yonder. The fish in these photos are all flathead catfish. And they're not just big, they're gigantic. Four and a half feet long and 36 inches around. What's more, they were all caught by hand. The proper name for it is G-R-A-B-B-L-I-N-G, Grablinga but we call it hand grabbing. And that's been what we call it ever since I was a chap. And I'm 72 years old, I'm 73 years old. So it's been that known as that a long time around here. Doc Harrington is a retired optometrist and the dean of hand grabbing on the Ross Barnett Reservoir. When he first started, there was just one way to hand grab, wade into lakes and streams and explore old logs, hollow stumps and holes in the banks, anywhere catfish spawn. The stupid way to fish, because any, any air hole in the bank or a log, a snake or a turtle or a beaver, anything can get in it, and they'll stay in it, and they will bite you. So it's dangerous, it, it, it's foolish to do it that way. Doc Harrington prefers the high-tech method of hand grabbing. First, houses made of old porcelain bathtubs and hot water heaters are submerged in shallow water about six to eight feet deep. From early May to mid-July, catfish enter these contraptions to lay their eggs and nest. That's when Doc Harrington's crew straps on scuba gear and dives down to the entrance, the hot water heater. And before the fish realizes what's happening, you dive both legs into that house and seal it with your belly and block it. And then he's in there. He can't go anywhere. All right, now he's 10 feet from you back in the bathtub, and you're in the end of that hot water tank. Now, how do you get him to you? 
With a 10-foot pole, of course, the diver probes the nest with a metal pole tipped with barbed wire, so it doesn't take long before the catfish makes a furious dash for the opening. And when you reach your hand in there to get him, he's going to get you. And then when he gets you, you get him and squeeze him against the top of the house with your legs, and you've got him almost immobilized. So then you can reach and get the rope that is stuck in your belt and run it through his mouth and out his gills, tie a knot in it, and turn him loose on a buoy. This is the most efficient way to catch this particular fish. Given rice and sticks and the net. Doc's crew today includes his son, Bobby, his friend, James, who's skippering the boat, and two local boys who are going out hand grabbing for the first time. We're coming up close to our house now. Doc knows where his catfish houses are by lining up markers in the water with trees on shore. Uh, see that red pole yonder, the buoy pole? Uh -huh. All right, way over yonder, you see three tall pine trees. You line that pole up with those pine trees and it's shallow out here. You back into the house, just line it up and keep walking a straight line and you walk right into the house. As James maneuvers the boat closer to the first house, Bobby puts on his mask, weight belt, and oxygen tank and jumps in. Yeah, yeah. Get old muddy reservoir water. The boys toss in the metal buoy, and Bobby disappears six feet below beneath a pool of bubbles. He's underwater for about 90 seconds when the buoy starts moving. He's got a fish. Now see the buoy is bouncing, and it means he's done tied him off. A few seconds later, Bobby and the catfish come to the surface at the same time. Pull the fish inside. Pull it, Jack. Corey, pick that fish up. Get her up, Corey. It's about a 25-pounder. Climbing back in the boat, Bobby says an even bigger one got away. I had a hold of him. You know, I had him. I was fitting to string him. And I just relaxed for a minute, and he got out of my hand. Back on shore, Doc wastes no time cleaning the one that didn't get away. You take a sharp instrument, like a box cutter, and circle that booger. All the skin should peel off of that fish without any further ado. Twenty minutes later, Doc and his sons are sitting at a booth inside the Pilahatchee Bay trading post, eating fried catfish fillets and telling hand-grabbing stories. Like the time a giant catfish swam out of a house so ferociously, it knocked Bobby right over. I couldn't grab hold of nothing to pull myself back up in there, and he just flat, just ran a slap over my face and went on out, you know, laid me over on my back. Or the time an angry catfish attacked Tommy Cleveland the grandfather of hand grabbers. And that fish swam up and bit his ear almost off. They had to take Tommy to the hospital and so his damn ear back home. Tommy Cleveland is a legend in this part of Mississippi, the one who revolutionized hand grabbing by introducing scuba gear to the sport. Now that Cleveland's retired, the Harringtons are one of just three hand grabbing crews on the reservoir to carry on the tradition. And Roy Harrington says they're all after the same thing, the big one. Oh, he's out there. He's been out there. We just ain't crossed his path yet. 
Somebody's going to sit down in the front of the house one day and it's going to be a hundred pounder in there and we're going to see. <laughs> I don't know who it's going to be. If it's me, I hope I catch it. Woke up this morning about half past four. Food I see tiptoeing across my floor. My ever-loving baby with a rod in her hand. Heading for the creek called Catfish Land. She yelled at me and said, get up, son. Come along with me and let's have some fun. I grabbed my britches and a long cane pole. Headed for the red hot catfish hole. Catfish Fish boogie, do it, baby, with me. The Mississippi Delta has been called the most southern place on earth, home to some of the nation's richest soil and poorest people. For years, cotton was king in Mississippi, but in some counties in the heart of the Delta, catfish has supplanted cotton as the number one cash crop. In the Delta, farm-raised catfish accounts for millions of dollars in revenue and thousands of jobs. One of the biggest employers in the region is Delta Pride. Delta Pride is the largest catfish processing plant in the world. Most of the company's 1,200 employees work here at the main plant in Indianola. Truckloads of live catfish harvested from nearby ponds just a few minutes earlier arrive here at the Delta Pride loading dock, flipping and flopping as they're dumped into holding tanks. A few minutes later, they're stunned with 40 volts of electricity. What little life is left in these catfish is quickly terminated when they arrive by conveyor belt here at the first workstation inside the plant. At a rate of about one per second, catfish are fed to a worker in a white smock standing in front of a long, narrow, vertical saw blade. Sarah White did this job when she started at Delta Pride in 1983. What you do you hold the head with one hand, and, and with the other hand, you hold the tail. And what you do is you cut around, sort of like the gear, the fin part, and you get a good round cut and take the head off. Then it goes to the ribbon table, where there's a sharp pointed knife. And what you would do, you would start at the belly of the fish and bring it up towards the neck and rip that whole stomach. Then it go to the long gunner, and that's where you got an air suction, a pipe running down, and you press that fish from that neck up on that air suction, and it will suck all the insides out. From here, the catfish are run through a skinning machine, then distributed on a series of conveyor belts to different departments within the plant to be hand filleted, dipped in Cajun or lemon pepper seasoning, frozen, packaged, and shipped out. With few exceptions, the hourly workers at Delta Pride and at all the other catfish processing plants in the Mississippi Delta are African-American women. That is the workforce that exists in the Delta. David Spencer is president and CEO of Delta Pride. It's the kind of work that I think that... Uh, they feel comfortable in doing, and um, they gravitate to, this, to the jobs that we have available here. I guess teen pregnancy played a, a big part in it for a lot of us. Delta Pride worker Sarah White. Got pregnant at an early age, ended up on the welfare line with not a lot of work ground here, not having an education. When the catfish industry came in, then it was booming as full as 
young, you know, black females that sort of like improve themselves, get off the welfare line. That was in all our thoughts is to try to uh, do better for our kids. But Sarah White soon found it difficult to balance a family budget on $3.40 an hour. She wasn't too crazy about the working conditions either. You know on the kill line, you have all that debris in your face from the fish, the blood, the guts, the, the eggs, and the whole works. And they wouldn't even let us go off and wash our face. So, in 1986, White led a campaign to unionize Delta Pride workers. Three years later, she led a walkout at the plant, the largest strike by African-American workers in Mississippi history. We come this It was a spirited strike, drawing the support of national civil rights leaders who were on hand at rallies like this one at a nearby church. Workers demanded higher wages and an end to what they said was a plantation mentality at Delta Pride. Management, they contended, cared more about the number of trips employees took to the bathroom than it did about the rising incidence of carpal tunnel or repetitive motion syndrome from long hours on the line, chopping, skinning, and filleting. The main thing is, all oh, they care about that fish. That's what they care about. That's the main, that's number one. That's all they want that fish to do. They don't care nothing about you. This is people's being mistreated out there. And we, we just can't take it no more. It just, we just, we do hard work for nothing. Throughout the strike, Delta Pride maintained that it had the best working conditions in the industry, that it treated its workers fairly, and that wages were reasonable considering high fish prices and increased competition. But after four months and a national boycott of Delta Pride catfish, the company was forced to make concessions on wages and health issues. It finally ended because we kicked their butts. <laughs> Today, Sarah White says things at Delta Pride have never been better. Things are great. When I say great, I mean it's full of working with the company, having an understanding, being able to talk. We don't mean that we don't disagree on things. But now we got a management team that's willing to sit, listen. And Sarah White, who walked into Delta Pride 12 years ago looking for a better life for her and her kids, is now a full-time organizer for Local 1529 of the United Food and Commercial Workers Union in Indianola, Mississippi. Stanley Marshall has probably eaten more catfish than anyone in the Mississippi Delta. He has most certainly tasted more catfish than anyone. For the past 12 years, Marshall has been Delta Pride's supervisor of flavor, a job that requires him to taste up to 400 samples of farm-raised catfish a day. And the ones that we look for have what we call just a mild or sweet type flavor, and usually anything other than that, we reject those. During the hot summer months, when algae becomes hard to control in nearby ponds, catfish can take on a woody or leathery flavor, and Marshall rejects up to 80% of the samples he tastes. Hey, Mr. Stock. Hello, Stanley. What's happening? This morning, farmer George Stock has brought in catfish from two of his ponds in a Ziploc plastic bag. Marshall takes the samples to his sink 
and prepares them for tasting. He has taken the whole fish, cut the tail section from the fish and put it in the bag and brought it to us. So we'll just wash this, put it in the lunch bag, and then microwave. Marshall's tasting kitchen has five microwaves, and on busy days, they're all in use. So as he waits for farmer Stock's catfish to cook, some other samples are ready. Marshall tears open the steaming brown paper bag, sniffs, and puts a forkful in his mouth. Well, this one, I would reject it because it has that offensive odor to it. It tastes more like a uh, sewage or, or, or woody type odor, so we don't want to process these. There's a lot riding on Stanley Marshall's taste buds. A bad batch of catfish could hurt Delta Pride's reputation and cost the company millions of dollars. On the other hand, catfish farming is capital intensive, and a delay in harvesting one or two ponds could put a farmer under. Twelve years of tasting, though, has made Marshall pretty confident about his ability to tell the good catfish from the bad. I can tell the farmer, look him straight in the eye and tell him his pond is all flavor and it, it doesn't bother me any. And he rarely gets an argument from farmers, who by now have heard the Stanley Marshall stories. There was the time Marshall detected a faint beer scent on a freshly cooked sample. It turns out the farmer had brought his catfish to Marshall in a plastic bucket that had previously been filled with empty beer cans. I didn't actually know what brand it was, but I knew it was beer. It was probably Budweiser, though. Another time, Marshall caught a whiff of an even more peculiar aroma. To me, it just smelled like a dog sitting in front of you panting, and you know how his breath smells. Turns out a Labrador retriever had gotten hold of the samples in the back of the farmer's pickup truck. And he pretty well took my word on his samples being one way or the other, all flavor or own. By now, the samples brought in by farmer stock a few minutes earlier are ready for tasting. This one tastes okay. It actually tastes pretty good. It's cooked with the skin on, no seasoning. It's just plain fish. And I think this fish tastes pretty good. I haven't tasted one this good a flavor in a while. One advantage of Marshall's job is that he doesn't have to bring his lunch to work. But there are limits to the amount of catfish a person can eat in one day. I noticed you just, you just spit that sample out. Usually I don't swallow these all day long. After sampling fish all day long, if I swallowed all of them, I would feel pretty nauseated by the end of the day. Now you might think that after tasting catfish all day long for a dozen years, catfish would be the last thing Stanley Marshall would want to see on his dinner plate. Not so. He likes catfish baked, broiled, or best of all, fried golden brown. Anyway, but microwave. That one smells bad. So we don't want to process any of these fish because I'm sure the customers wouldn't want to eat those. Stanley Marshall is supervisor of flavor at Delta Pride, the world's largest catfish processing plant located in Indianola, Mississippi. Well, there's only one kind of fish I chase, the one with the mustache on his face. I want catfish all my life. Catfish tastes so fine.
When the sun goes down in the Mississippi Delta, the frogs sound the warning that the bugs are taking over. The bugs eat you up. They get in your eyes and ears and nose and mouth, and, and then when they get through stopping everything up, the mosquitoes touch out. <laughs> They'll eat you up too. For three years, Wes Bobo spent his nights and early mornings, about 100 hours a week, battling bugs and tending catfish ponds near Rolling Fork, Mississippi. It'll make you gray-headed and give you ulcers <laughs> and everything, because it, it ain't fun at all. The stress comes from knowing that if there's not enough oxygen in the pond, tens of thousands of catfish worth tens of thousands of dollars could die in a matter of minutes. It happened one night to Wes Bobo. It just was solid fish on the top with the bellies up. They probably had 300,000 pounds in there. And it was just solid fish. You could walk across them just about. The long hours, the low pay, and a couple of ulcers forced Wes Bobo to quit his job tending catfish. That gave him more time to work on his art. Here, he's working on one of the sculptures he makes from copper scraps and driftwood collected from the banks of the Mississippi River. Short and stocky, with shoulder-length curly brown hair, a few days' growth beard, and wearing blue jeans and a dirty white T-shirt, Bobo aims his blowtorch at a copper leaf, and with a few squirts from a spray bottle, the copper turns blue, then purple, then green. The water cools it off the color you want it. There are certain times of the month when Bobo won't work with copper. He says it has something to do with the lunar cycle. Moon's got to be right, it won't color. It's the last half of the last quarter and the first half of the first quarter. It won't work. <laughs> you have to see the, the blue and the purple and all that in it. You can't get that in there. It'll just be black. I got it a little too hot. It's hard to classify Wes Bobo's art. In fact, he doesn't even consider himself an artist. Folks say I am, but I don't claim to be one. <laughs> Here in the Delta, Wes Bobo is known less for his art and more for his mechanical know-how. When he was seven, he was building lawnmower engines. His teachers would have him fix their appliances at home, but they never diagnosed his dyslexia. So Bobo never made it out of grammar school. Now 55, he still can't read and write. But I, I can count, and I can use numbers, and I can read blueprints. And he can build just about anything. A lot, lot of stuff that I can build that don't nobody else mess with. <laughs> and and uh, you folks used to come to me and ask me, could I do something? Now they just come and ask me how long it's going to take. <laughs> so I'm getting better, I guess. <laughs> Is there anything you can't make? Money. <laughs> I can't make money much. Bobo made this drill press in his garage out of a lawnmower transmission, a trailer jack, and part of a cotton planter. Now this was thrown away. <laughs> His garage is packed with salvaged junk, old gears, wheels, generators, compressors, TV sets, tools, and fan belts of various sizes. You don't never know when you're going to need a belt. His front yard is strewn with old lawnmowers, air conditioners, refrigerators, washers, and dryers. Thanksgiving, my refrigerator broke, and uh, I didn't get upset or nothing, so I just come out back, got me a motor and built it, took it in there and put it in my refrigerator, and it's been working ever since. So, I mean, that's why I don't throw nothing away, because tomorrow I might need it. <laughs>
Bobo's wife, Virginia, has tried to get rid of a few things. The first attempt occurred about 10 years ago. I don't like all this junk as well as Wes does, so me and somebody, we got out there with bulldozer and dug a hole and buried it, and Wes had to dig it out. I thought he, he didn't hurt anybody, but he was upset. Uh, but I've just learned if, if we're going to put up with Wes, we got to put up with this junk, okay? Got about three, four sets of good rims. Nothing to put them on. And all that's wrong with that Suburban is the windshield's busted. It's got a new engine in it. Artist, mechanic, engineer, inventor, and junk collector Wes Bobo lives on Highway 61 in Egremont, Mississippi. Bobo's dinosaur sculptures, made from scrap iron, salvaged from a nearby factory, have been recognized by the National Museum of American Art and the State Historical Museum. His 40-foot-long catfish sculpture sits in front of the Catfish Museum in Belzona, Mississippi. Just down the road from Belzona, on Highway 49 in Humphreys County, in the heart of the Mississippi Delta, there's a billboard with a giant catfish that appears to be swimming out over a cotton field. It's an advertisement for farm-raised catfish, but it represents much more than that. Well, I would, I would catfish swimming in the deep blue sea. I have all, all your women fishing out of me. In blues songs like this one, the catfish is attractive and virile. In political cartoons, it's used to characterize slimy, deceitful politicians. And to a growing number of people in the Mississippi Delta, catfish represents a steady job and a good livelihood. But to Delta blues man Big Jack Johnson, the catfish represents something even more basic. Yeah, it represents a good eat. That's what it represents, a good piece of fish on your plate. That's what it represents.